So we're in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to continue the verse-by-verse teaching. Uh, Titus 2, 11 through 15. So go ahead and locate that text. Titus 2, and let's pray one more time. Father, we are here to honor you. That's really why we come to church. We could talk about all kinds of reasons. We get fed, we get to enjoy fellowship, maybe we even have a donut. But in the end, Lord, we're here because you are worthy of our honor, worthy of our time, worthy of our service, worthy for us to live a godly life for the grace that we've experienced. And we're grateful that one of the responses that we can have to grace is godliness, a God-centered life, a God-dominated life. That is a decision that we make every day, every moment of every day. We are called to surrender and to allow your life, your grace, your message, your doctrine to be so part of us that it comes out in who we are. It doesn't have to be forced. It just needs to be the power of God through a yielded life. The Apostle Paul pictures this life as one who wears clothing, the clothing of Christ, the armor of light. And I pray, Father, that whatever we have dragged into this place today would fall away in the grandeur of your beauty and the power of your grace. We lay this time at your feet, pray that you would lead it by your Holy Spirit, take us where you want us to go, open our ears to your truth and your word, we pray in Jesus' name and for your glory, amen. Amen. All right, Titus 2, the school of grace. So we are in a a book that we have called as a theme, Grace and Godliness, and that's how the order goes, grace comes first, godliness follows. And this particular message is called the School of Grace. We're just going to go to the end of chapter 2 this morning, the School of Grace. Let's pick up verse 11. It says, For the grace of God, Titus 2.11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, the grace that we've talked about in the past is that beautiful Greek word called charis, It is translated into English, C-H-A-R-I-S, if you're interested, charis, and it's God's benevolence, God's goodness, God's favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Noah was told to build an ark. This is Genesis 6, verse 8, and uh, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he built an ark, and even though Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord, he had to still enter the ark, amen? Amen. So you can find grace. The grace of God has appeared to all men. This is not, by the way, a universalistic message or a Bible verse. That's not what Paul is teaching. Paul is saying that the grace of God has made an epiphany into humanity through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God. He is the face of grace, and he has appeared. This is the word epiphany in verse 11. We're going to see this word twice, and I think what you're going to find is you're going to have the first and second comings laid out before us in verse 13. 
Just skip ahead for a second. We are looking for the blessed hope, the appearing, there's epiphany again, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Second coming there, first coming in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. It's appeared, notice at the end of verse 11, to all men. Jesus Christ is the light that illumines all of mankind. That light has appeared. The ark has come. The ark of safety. We're invited to come into the ark. All men have an opportunity to come in. But we still have to enter the ark of grace. So Jesus Christ has appeared. Skip over to John chapter 1. This is a great explanation of how this works. John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at verse 5 with me. John 1. Oh, there's so much good stuff here. Go back to verse 4. <laughs> in him, in Jesus Christ, was life, John 1, 4, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, John 1, 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light. Verse 7, that all might believe through him. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world, notice, enlightens every man. He, Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him but as many as, here's the action that we need to respond to this appearance of grace. As many as what? Received him. You've got to receive Christ to be saved. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even though God's your creator, you're not his child until you come into the ark. You must come into the ark of Christ to become children of God, even to those, notice, who what? Believe, which means trust in his name. Skip ahead to verse 29. John the Baptist, this one who bore witness to the light, says these words. The next day he saw Jesus, John 1.29, coming to him, and he said, behold, or look, we would say, look, the Lamb of God. Here is the epiphany. He appeared. Look, there's the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. And you could say the rest of the Gospel of John, if you turn back to Titus, is the revealing of this light. And the people who first met him telling brothers and others, hey, we found the Messiah. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. This is what the church does. We tell people about the grace that we've experienced. We tell them about Jesus. He has appeared. In the very history in which we live, Jesus Christ appeared. Even liberal scholars do not deny his historicity. They say, yeah, Jesus lived. Now, you have to determine what you believe about Jesus and who he is. I don't think it's hard to figure out, by the way. All you have to do is read the Bible. And the Bible will tell you who Jesus is. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer of salvation is available to everyone, but we must enter, to enter the ark. In the Hebrew picture language, the Old Testament word for grace, sometimes translated favor, is defined this way by Dr. Seekins. He says it could be defined as to fence or protect life, grace. 
What does grace protect us from? Judgment. Because when Noah got on the ark, the ark which becomes a type of Christ protected him from what? Judgment. And that's what Jesus does. That's what grace does. Jesus took our judgment at the cross. He defeated death through the resurrection. And that salvation has appeared. The offer comes to all people. 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. Grace has appeared. And now we have a responsibility. One is that we believe in the grace, we receive the finished work of Jesus Christ, and when we do, Romans 3.24 says we are justified. Now that we have received Christ, we are declared righteous in the courtroom of Almighty God. He no longer sees us in our sin, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And even though that is true now, and that is, a, that is a free gift of God, we still now have to respond to grace. And the second part of what we've been talking about, if you look up at the slide for a second, is that the response to grace is a life of godliness. So we're saved completely by grace, clothed with Christ. This is our positional reality. But now practically, we are to become what we are positionally. Righteous in the eyes of God, now we want to be practically righteous. This is the correct response to grace. You don't get saved by grace and then say, thanks God, now I'm moving on with my normal everyday life. Now grace changes everything. Everything. Hasn't that happened for you? My life now becomes a life of a story of grace. The blind man says, once I was blind, now I see. His light has flooded my life. It's not just a little change in my life. It's changed everything. There's uh, missions that help the homeless and they have what's called a delousing room where many destitute and homeless people will, who have not had a bath for months discard their old clothes and they are thoroughly bathed and disinfected. The old clothes that cannot be salvaged are burned and new clothes are issued. The cleaned up person is provided with clean clothes and that's what happens to us. We are clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ but now we make a decision every single day and it's captured in many different ways in the New Testament. It's to put on the armor of God. It's to put on the new man. It's to put on the armor of light. Now we are people of light. Once we lived in darkness, now we are what? Light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is the response to grace. Grace is a beautiful thing. You can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't add one thing to the finished work of Christ. But now that we are light in the Lord, we're to walk out who we are. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We've been over it. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. That is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one, what? Should boast. But we are his workmanship, his work of art, And we are to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're to walk out the reality of who we are. That should be something that just should be the natural excitement of a Christian, don't you think? 
And this is why sometimes when we look at people, we, we wonder, well, have you been touched by grace if you can continue to live in darkness? And we all know that sanctification, after we get saved, takes time, right? It seems like we're in a constant time of dealing with cleansing and renewal. And there are times when we are certainly baby Christians and we have to grow up and all of that. But now we move from what we would call doctrine, who we are, to duty. Or in this case, duty to doctrine. I'll explain that in a second. We are adorned with the doctrines. Look back for a second at verse 10 in Titus 2. After that long list of all the different things we should do, which addresses older women, younger women, it addresses young men and older men, everybody. Pastor Chris, I'm so glad he had to preach that message last Sunday because it's kind of the way I set things up. I I ask him to preach on controversial texts. So if people are going to get mad, they get mad at Pastor Chris. I even give out his email. Um, But (laughs) when he came to the end of that section, he He shared these words, verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they, that is believers, may adorn, see that word adorn, that's the idea of clothing, the doctrine of God, our Savior, in how many ways? In every respect, in all ways, we are to wear the doctrine of grace. People say, a man or a woman, the clothing makes the man, right? Well, as a Christian, the clothing that we now wear is the clothing of grace. And that should be evident in our actions. That's what verses 1 through 10 are all about. How we live shows who we are. We wear, if you will, the garments of grace. The word adorn here is a Greek word that speaks of an ordered life. It speaks of adornment and it speaks of a beauty and a grace. Sometimes we describe Beautiful people as people who are people of grace. The church is a beautiful representation of the grace of God. We are all trophies of grace. Amen? So whenever you share your story, I would just start right there. I would start with grace. Begin and end with grace because that's the only reason why I'm standing here and you're sitting there. Amen? Is because the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. New King James, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all of us, NIV. It has made an epiphany. Jesus Christ has come. The grace of God has come. By the way, God's always been a God of grace. He doesn't change. But grace and truth were realized through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace made an epiphany, but God has always been a God of grace. He's always been filled with hased, which is the loving kindness of the loyal love of God. But grace expressed itself in history in Jesus Christ. By the way, he's coming again. Grace made an appearance in the very history in which we live. And it was only really about three years or three and a half years that his public ministry went forth. And think of all the things that he packed into those three years. Think of how many lives he touched. Think of how many people he healed. Think of the gracious words that fell from his lips time and time again. Grace has made an appearance. And this is uh, Hebrews 9, verse 11. It says, when Christ appeared, Hebrews 9, I'm reading 11 and 12, as a high priest of the good things to come. Why don't you flip over to Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater, 
and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Hebrews 9, a little bit to your right. Look at verse 12. Hebrews 9, verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Skip down to verse 25. Hebrews 9, 25. Now, nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, verse 26, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he, Jesus, has manifested, been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ, Hebrews 9.28, also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear, there's our word again, he's gonna make a, an appearance again, a second time, a second epiphany, if you will, a second time for salvation, but this time without, notice, reference to sin, he only died once for sin, to those who what? Who are eagerly waiting for him. The second time he appears, this appearance, go back to Titus, will have nothing to do with the payment for sin. That happened once. He died once. He will never die again. Praise God. Never. He doesn't have to suffer over and over again. He paid one sacrifice once for all people, all time, for those who will receive him. And when he appears a second time, He's going to come and rescue his people. He is coming for salvation, but in this sense, it's a different kind of salvation. And some of this depends on your eschatological viewpoint. Pastor Michael, I haven't even had my coffee yet. What are you talking about? What does that mean? That means your viewpoint of the last days. And here's my viewpoint. I believe that when Jesus Christ comes, it'll be one second coming, one first coming, one second coming. And when he comes, he's going to rescue his church in a time called the Great Tribulation. And he's going to pull the church out, save them, different sense of salvation, and pour his judgment on what? An unbelieving world. This is the second coming, the second epiphany. And when he comes, he says, lift up your heads for your redemption is what? Drawing near. And the world's going to say, oh! And the Christians are going to say, oh yeah! Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Saved by grace, kept by grace. He's coming again. But we live in a school of grace. And there's a response to this grace. And here's what grace teaches us. It teaches us godliness. I've said several times in the previous messages, a God-centered or God-dominated life is a good definition of godliness. And here's what uh, this grace teaches us. It instructs us. Look at verse 12. Grace is still the subject from verse 11. Grace instructs us to what? To deny ungodliness, the opposite of godliness, obvious, and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. There's a present age and there's an age to come which will be initiated by the second coming of Christ. Grace trains us, ESV, to renounce, the nuance here is to renounce on an ongoing basis ungodliness and worldly passions, NIV. Grace teaches us, verse 12, 
to say no to ungodliness. Grace is a teacher. All of us are in the school of grace. Now that we've been saved by grace, grace teaches us. And we're in class now for the rest of our lives. And we respond, yes, Mrs. Grace. Good morning, class. Good morning, Mrs. Grace. Grace now instructs us how to live. Grace is our teacher. And so we are to say, as she teaches us, yes, no to ungodliness, but yes to what we should do. I'll talk about the yes in a second. But look at verse 12 again. Grace teaches us, the NIV says, to say no. In the 80s, uh, Nancy Reagan came up with a campaign for the war on drugs. Some of you may remember this if you were around in the 80s. And the campaign was, just say no. Remember? And so she was interviewed on all kinds of programs. And if you look it up on the internet today, some people will say, it didn't work, it didn't help anybody. Drugs are still a terrible epidemic. Oh, they certainly are. But Nancy Reagan was interviewed and she said, if we could just help one child say no to drugs, then we, have, we will have succeeded. Grace teaches us to say no to certain things. No. It's always a crack up when you uh, have little kids and they say no to you for the first time. <laughs> and it's kind of cute and kind of scary at the same time. You ever been there before? Little Johnny, even before mommy and daddy comes out, no, nah, no. Nah. And you're like, where did that kid get that? From you? Because what did you do in the early training of this child? They touch it now. <laughs> Especially things that were on tables that they can get at, right? No, 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 no. Now they say it and you're shocked, right? Where did he get that? Grace teaches us to say no. To what? To things that would hurt us. Now when a child wants something, let's say you're in the store with the little kid, maybe your child. If it's your grandchild, you just give them whatever they want. Right? Isn't that payback for all grandparents? Go ahead, have the candy. I'm going to send you home in two hours anyway. <laughs> Let them clean it up. <laughs> We're waiting on that time to come. But anyway... So the little kid, if you say, no, you haven't had your dinner yet, you're going to have dinner for, I want your dinner. Have you ever, you ever seen one of these in the store? It's always much more convenient if it's not your child. Then you're like, jeez, what's wrong with those parents? <laughs> Disaster. Can't you kid your, teach your kids some manners, man? That kid ought to be smacked. Right? But when it's your own kid, you're like, oh, shoot. Are there any video cameras in here? <laughs> Why do you say no to that kid? Well, it could be sugar's bad for the teeth. It could be... You don't want them to get in the habit of getting everything they want. So you say no. And so they throw the tantrum. And here's where the test of your boundaries comes, right? Are you going to hold your boundary? Sometimes we just get so tired. Like, whatever, I don't care. Eat it all. 
till it's coming out of your eyes. <laughs> and all God's people said, all right, I, yeah, I know. The word that grace teaches us is a word that's used in Ephesians 6 that fathers need to train their children in the fear and what? Admonition of the Lord or discipline of the Lord. The word train is a word, when you look it up in Greek, it has the idea of training a child all the way through childhood and teen years. It's instruction, it's training, it's discipline, it's encouragement, it's all of that. We're in the school of grace and we're learning, right? And some things we just have to say no to. As much as our flesh screams out for it, we just have to say no and hold the boundary. You with me? Because your flesh is going to go, Why can I have that now? Grace. That doesn't sound like grace to me. (laughs) Oh, it is. Because we want to do things that are good for us now, right? Healthy for our spiritual life. I've been telling you in a lot of these epistles, when doctrine is used, it's the word sound is put before it. It means healthy. We want to do things that are healthy for this life of grace now, right? We don't want to do things that are counterproductive. We don't want to put on the old garments. We don't want to wallow in the mud anymore. Brian Chapel and R. Kent Hughes write this story in a commentary on Titus. They say, when El Nino's rain deluged Southern California one recent winter, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family. While the family was still in their home, a wave of mud tore through the house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night. The parents began to search through the darkness for the child, tromping through mire that had descended upon their whole neighborhood. They searched, dug, and called for their child throughout the long night without results. When morning came, a rescuer himself covered in mud came to the parents with a mud-caked bundle in his arms. The baby filthy, but alive. You know what that mother did? She clung to her child despite its filth, washed the muck away, and determined to keep that child out of the mud in the future. Can I give you an application? Stay out of the mud. Now, I know when we were younger, we liked to play mud football. Anybody? So whenever it it rarely... I saw a girl raise her hand. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. Yeah! War paint on your face. Come on! Those were younger days. Now, no mud football. (laughs) Right? Well, the Lord embraces us in our mud... There's a lot of people who think, oh, I, I, here's what I'll do. This is the famous statement from unbelievers. I'll clean up my life, then I'll come visit your church. No. Just come as you are, because you aren't going to clean up your own life. You need to let the Lord do that. Illustration, you don't stand outside a shower and say, I'll come in as soon as I get clean. <laughs> no. No, you let the shower do its work. The purpose of a shower is to cleanse you. 
So 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, we've all fallen in the mud even after becoming Christians probably more times than we'd like to admit. But grace and the school of grace that we're in now, because we've been saved by this amazing grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Look at verse 12. And worldly desires, I don't think that's hard to define. The world has a system, it has a way. In much of the world, it's an anti-God system. They don't want to hear about it. And so the Christian is to deny ungodliness. The opposite of a God-dominated life is a self-dominated life. That's ungodliness. It's a life dominated by self. I want nothing to do with God. Just look at the word, ungodliness. I want nothing to do with God and nothing to do with his ways. That's the world. And the Christian says, I want everything to do with God and everything to do with his ways. Amen? Because this is my new life. And so worldly desires are just that, the things that the world craves. And it could include a long list of decisions that we make, how we spend our time, talent, and treasure, our sexual ethics, our language, our commitment to marriage, the covenants that we make and hopefully keep. Everything now aligns to this God who saved me by grace. Amen? I don't get to define it for myself now. I've been saved by a God of grace, but he has expectations, and his expectations are, I'm putting you in school now. I know it's going to take some time. We can all be of good cheer, right? We're in school for many years, pretty much in school our whole lives, right? You never stop learning. You never stop growing. So be of good cheer. You're saved by grace. You don't earn it. But the rest of your life, you're in a school teaching you to deny worldly appetites, an anti-God mindset, You know, when you get into the weeds of the world, that's pretty much what motivates the world is an anti-God mindset, verse 12. And here's the positive. We're to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Three positives. We deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Two negatives. The positives are Live a sensible life, live a righteous life, and live a godly life in this present age because this present age isn't all that there is. That's the difference between you as a believer and a non-Christian. A non-Christian, whether they admit it or not, thinks this is all that there is. So they're living for all the gusto they can get right now. And even the gusto they get oftentimes doesn't do anything for them. Sometimes it's a moment of pleasure and they still feel regret. They still feel emptiness. And you come along wearing the clothing of light. Ah! (laughs) In the company. Shoot! (laughs) It's Monday morning, dude. Why are you so shiny? People putting on their sunglasses around you. Because I've been touched by grace. That's why I live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age because I'm not just living for this, this present age. I'm living for what verse 13 says. I'm looking, if you have the ESV, NIV, it says I'm waiting for something called the blessed hope. That is the appearing 
Second use of epiphany here. The first coming is in verse 11. The second coming is in verse 13. I'm looking for the epiphany, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You might want to mark this verse because this is a verse that is unambiguous, definite, Jesus Christ is God. He is our great God and Savior. Now some people say, oh, no, 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 Titus 2.13 has to be separated. There's a great God and then Jesus is our Savior. No, the Bible teaches over and over again that Jesus Christ is God, second person of the Holy Trinity, right? 100% man, 100% God. He is God. And Titus 2.13 says, we are waiting for the arrival. By the way, when you survey the New Testament, you don't see verses that teach the Father is coming again. Who's coming again? The Son. He's coming. And every eye will see Him, right? The Father sent the Son at the first coming. And I think the New Testament... Testament evidence is strong that the one who's coming again is the Son. Amen. He made the first epiphany and he's making the second appearing. The Son is the subject. Therefore, I take the verse clearly that Jesus Christ is our God and Savior and he is the one who is appearing. We're looking for the appearing of what? The glory. Now, when he was here in the first epiphany, he kind of veiled his glory in humanity. Remember when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he showed some of that glory, right? Zipped down the jacket a little bit. Ah! <laughs> on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And he was, the glory cloud was there and Moses and Elijah appeared with him. It's kind of a foretaste of what is coming. And here's what I believe is going to happen. I believe that when the sun, moon, and stars go out, in the end times, that in a darkened sky, the glory of this one who is God is going to appear again. This is what the Bible teaches in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Let's just take a peek at Luke 21 because I think hopefully this will excite us as Christians. Here's what we're looking for. We're looking for the appearing of the glory. Luke 21. And that is of our great God and Savior. Luke 21, 25. Some hard stuff is in this chapter that relates to the fall of Jerusalem and then to a future hard time for humanity. And Jesus is speaking and he says, Luke 21, 25, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, 21, 25, and upon the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man. That's a way to describe the Messiah. And he will be coming in a cloud with what? Power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Flip over to Matthew 24 for a second. Matthew 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at the same content is here. And Jesus 
It's talking about his second coming. This is 2427 of Matthew. He says, For just as the lightning, Matthew 2427, comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Just a simple idiom, it'll be as plain as the nose on your face or when vultures are flying above something that has died on the ground. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation in the, of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and, and they... And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. You can write down Revelation 1-7 there. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with what? Power and great glory. Here's the appearing of the glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they, the angels, will gather together his elect. I believe this is the rapture here. And this tells us something about the rapture. The angels are doing the gathering, gathering the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. I'm hoping that Michael is going to pick me up because I kind of like that name. Anyway, <laughs> let's go back, go back to Titus. Jesus talks about his glory several times in his sermons. He says the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father, Matthew 16, 27. He says in Matthew 25, 31, then the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. What are we looking for? The appearing of the glory. His glory is going to make a display in the sky. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. The second coming, I live in the light of the second coming. That's part of the school of grace. I live in the light of an age to come. And in the ages to come, God is going to show me the exceeding riches of his grace. He's going to show me a, a shining city and a place where it says there are many mansions. Amen. It doesn't say apartments. It says mansions. <laughs> At least in one of the translations. Dwelling place. This is the blessed hope. The blessed hope, Titus 2.13, would include Jesus' return. This is why it's blessed. The resurrection and rapture. The union of believers with the living Christ. The deliverance of believers from persecution, in my view. The appearing of the glory. The second epiphany will include... His return, the resurrection, the rapture, and a great reunion. That's a blessed hope. Amen? Amen? Let me say it one more time. The blessed hope will include the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the rapture of the church, the union of believers with the living Christ, or reunion, and then 
He's going to judge the world, and I believe then is when we're going to have a new heavens, a new earth, or a new Jerusalem to inhabit. This is the blessed hope. And the biblical word for hope is not I hope so, it's I know so. It's just a matter of time. He's coming in God's time, and I want to be ready when he comes. Romans 8 says, we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of, fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We're waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I am making more and more what I used to call Uncle Frank noises. <laughs> My Uncle Frank would bend over for things and go, ooh, 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 ooh. Mostly to try to garner compassion from the younger folks in the house. Can you get me that? Oh, it hurts when I... Re- oh. We're groaning within ourselves. Waiting for what? The redemption of our body. This is the blessed hope. Amen? So many deaths around us. People die. Disease, death, and, and sometimes we say, is this the end of the story? No, we have a blessed hope. The appearing of the glory. He's coming again, folks. We are waiting for the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5.5. 5. In us, this riches, the riches of the grace of God has been made known. The glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, Titus 2.14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself. He gave himself, Titus 2.14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. He gave himself that he might redeem us. See that word redeem? That's the idea of buying out or buying back. He bought us with the price. Therefore, glorify God, 1 Corinthians 6, in your body. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. You've been redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. How do you say it? By how you live. How do you respond to this awesome grace? By what you do now. You honor him. He gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. He gave himself for us. We're the redeemed community. He bought us out of Egypt to save us as he took them to Mount Sinai from every what? Lawless deed. And he is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. What should we be now zealous for? Good deeds. Do good deeds excite you? Are you zealous for service? Uh, I'm not sure about the modern church. I know there's a lot of people with zeal in here for God and zeal for service, but there's a lot of Christians today that define their Christianity by once a week, and how that went for an hour and a half. Are you zealous for good deeds? Does the zeal of the Lord consume you? You see, those who are saved by grace, man, the response is, I've been bought with a price, and I want to be passionate for good deeds. Often after a person is born again, Francis Schaeffer says, they ask, what shall I do next? He is given a list of things usually of a limited nature and primarily negative. 
The true Christian life is not merely a negative not doing of any small list of things. Even if the list began is an excellent list of things to be aware of. We must still emphasize that the Christian life or true spirituality is more than refraining from certain external lists of taboos in a mechanical way. The other extreme is that there's people who say, well, if the Christian life is not a bunch of taboo things, things I shouldn't do, I'm into the more lax Christian life. Right? But in adopting that philosophy, sometimes those people compromise. And there's a middle ground here. We're saved by grace, but we want to please our master. And so we have to start asking some deeper questions in life. And I think anybody who's been saved for some time is asking deeper questions. The school of grace has caused me to look a little deeper. I start to ask about my motivations. Anybody else? I start to ask about my motivations of the good things I do and the temptation of the bad things. I'm looking a little deeper now. Why do I do what I do? Why do I give? Why do I do this? Why do I do that? I start to analyze, and I don't want you to drive yourself with the, crazy with the paralysis of analysis. Because some of you do that, right? I don't know, what was my motive there? I don't, ah! don't do that. Always fall back to grace, amen? But let grace, let that school of grace make you look a little deeper, we must realize that we, we don't do or uh, not do certain things just in a mechanical way. What should happen in our life should flow from a covenant that we're in, a new covenant, gratitude, honor, witness, and destiny. Let me say that one more time. What we do or don't do should flow from the new covenant, gratitude we have for God, honor, witness, and destiny. The school of grace keeps teaching me to say no to certain things, and yes to certain things. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he won't, what, depart from it. So the school of grace tells me what to say yes to and what to say no to. And frankly, it's not that hard to figure out. When Christians begin to ask questions like, hey, uh, how close can you get to the edge without falling into the abyss? Tell me that, pastor. Can you, lo- <laughs> can you look for 10 minutes? Why are you asking that question? Have you ever been there before? The School of Grace even starts to challenge you about why you ask questions the way you do. Hmm. Not always comfortable, is it? (laughs) But God's doing a work. We're a bought people. And this is Old Testament language for how God bought Israel out of Egypt and wanted them to be a special people. And of course they failed because what we need is grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Canon Aitken suggested, he wrote a book in the 1880s called The School of Grace, that the two comings of Christ are like two windows in the school of grace. We keep our eye out for his return, but we also never forget why we will be with him in the end. The school of grace always keeps its eye on two epiphanies. One, we celebrate this as at communion, right? When we go to the communion table, we remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The school of grace 
tells me I'm living between the times. I'm living in the last days between the first and second epiphanies. And because I live here, I'm in a school of grace. I look back to the finished work of Christ, cleansed by the blood, finished, done, declared righteous, but I'm looking forward to a second epiphany. And I live in the latter times, and that should affect my decision-making. Amen? And it's not only about me. I want other people to get on the ark. Amen? So, final verse for this morning. These things speak. Paul, talking to Titus as a young pastor, these things, Titus, you are to speak to this, these congregations and exhort and reprove with all authority and let, verse 15, let no one disregard you. You're going to have times when people just want to dismiss what you have to say. <laughs> Get this, even church people. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, that, we don't need to worry about Right? And this is what was happening in the island of Crete. There were some people who were buying into the lies. And Paul says, Look, you got to tell them, you got to speak these things, exhort these things, reprove. It's been said that the job of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Let me say it one more time. The job of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And all God's people said, ouch. <laughs> so we get kind of lax in our Christian life sometimes, right? And we need a little smack. Some people say, step on my toes, go ahead. I love that. Okay. <laughs> we need it, don't we? All right. Final story. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. In the, in the 17th century, a young boy was born into a Christian home and for the first six years of his life, he heard the truths of the gospel and was dearly loved. Sadly, though, his parents died. The orphan boy went to live with his relatives and he was mistreated, abused, ridiculed, even for his interest in Christ as a young boy. As an orphan, he couldn't tolerate the situation, so he ran away and he fled and joined the Royal Navy. In the Navy, the boy's life just went downhill. Like most sailors of his day, he lived in rebellion and lived a debauched life. He became known as a brawler. He was whipped many times and he participated in torture of some of his own comrades. Finally, while he was still young, he deserted the Royal Navy and fled to Africa where he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trader. He worked on slave ships capturing slaves for sale to the plantations of the New World. There his life reached the lowest point it had ever reached. At one point, he became a slave himself. There were times when he actually ate off the floor on his hands and knees. He escaped and then became attached to another slave trader as his first mate on his ship. But the young man's pattern of life became just worse and worse. He stole the ship's whiskey one night and got so drunk that he fell overboard. One of the versions of the story says that he was close to drowning when one of his shipmates harpooned him and brought him back on board. As a result, the young man had a huge scar in his side for the rest of his life. He couldn't get much lower. Finally, in the midst of a great storm off the coast of Scotland, in the reading of Thomas A. Kempis's classic Imitation of Christ, it planted seeds that resulted in his conversion. 
After days and days of pumping water out of the boat, the young man began to reflect on verses that he had heard as a boy, and he was marvelously saved. He became a leader in the evangelical movement in the 18th century in England, along with such men as John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, and even William Wilberforce. On his tombstone is inscribed the following epitaph, written by John Newton himself. These words, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. The new life he found is reflected in the famous words that he penned so long ago. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Father, thank you for the school of grace and thank you for changing grace in our lives. Your grace, Jesus, you said to Paul, is sufficient. And Lord, forgive us for all the times when we've gone every direction except grace. We've not leaned upon your power. We've tried to do it ourselves. Thank you for cleansing grace and empowering grace. And sometimes the school of grace is the school of hard knocks. It was for Newton. It was even for Joseph. But Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to preserve life. And that's what grace is about. You work all things together for good to those who are saved, those who are called, those who love you. You don't work some things together for good. You work all things together. Thank you for this great school of grace that we're in. Thank you that we are looking for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we live now between the times, but there's an age to come when death will be no more, Pain will be gone, suffering, every tear will be wiped from our eyes, and we will see the face of grace. Help us to live in light of that, Father. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus, if you've not known grace, today can be your day. But you must run into the ark of safety. You must decide to receive this free gift. Otherwise, the Bible says you will perish. Run to the ark. Run to the one who loved you so much he shed his blood for you. It's something like this. If you want to make it official today, something like this. If you want to rededicate your life, pray it now. Don't wait another day. Don't risk it. It's just There's just too much at stake. Something like this. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Pray it if it's you. Please forgive me of all of my sin. Thank you that you came into this world. You appeared You died on that awful cross for me. You shed your precious blood to buy me. Oh Lord, forgive me of my sin. I repent of it and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please change me from the inside out. Lord, for those who are crying out or maybe for other needs in the room that Christians have or maybe even for the prayers that are going up for loved ones who are not saved. I just pray that you'd meet every need in this room. Bring your power, bring your grace to every life, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.